So the other night, I get a text message from someone I don't know that said, Hey Mike, it was good to see you the other night. When can we meet up again? <laughs> if you got this text from a number that you did not recognize, what would you do? So, so think about it. Would you A, text back saying something like, I'm sorry, I'm not Mike. Would you B, delete the message and not worry about the person trying to contact Mike? Or would you C, try to figure out who the phone number belongs to and then message them back because, well, it could be somebody who's not in your contacts, right? <laughs> what would you do? For me, my very first impulse is to respond by typing back something like, sorry, you have the wrong number. I'm not Mike. Why would I do this? Well, because I'm a nice guy and I would hate someone to be mad at Mike thinking that he never responded when it was the other person who messed up sending the message to the wrong person. That's my first impulse. But then, my better senses take over and I delete the message. I don't worry about Mike because Mike probably doesn't even exist. So, you know this is a scam, right? These texts can be generated by bots programmed to flag your number as valid should you respond or by people looking to get your personal information by charming you when you respond, making you feel important and comfortable so they can solicit information from you. <laughs> it is really easy to mistake that these texts are coming from nice people. In fact, I know a handful of, of individuals who have lost money and even had their identity stolen because of scammers using phishing tactics just like this. Now, there is nothing to be ashamed of if that has ever happened to you or a family member it just means that you are a trusting individual. So, public service announcement time. I don't want to say that everyone you don't know is trying to scam you, but everyone you don't know is trying to scam you. At least that's how it seems. Growing up, my parents told me not to take rides or food from strangers. Those were the two rules to remember. That's all I had to, to think about as, as a kid. How simple is that? Don't get in the car and don't take candy from someone that you don't know. Emily and I have told our kids not to take rides, food, and don't click on links you don't know. Don't give out personal information. Don't chat with strangers on social media. Be careful what you post online. Essentially, the message we're telling our kids is this. Don't trust anyone. <laughs> I want to trust people. I want to believe what people say, but I don't. Think about this for a second. How trusting are you as an individual? If it's not someone that you know personally, do, do you believe what people tell you? Do you give people the benefit of the doubt? Do you? I'm skeptical. 
I do not simply give my trust to people or believe what they say without seriously questioning the content or going into a person's background to know who they are. But I don't like what this does to me, how it makes me feel, and, and what it does to us as human beings. It's one thing to joke about not trusting the sweepstakes giveaways that come in the mail, or not trusting some advertisement, or even a suspicious text message, but this issue has spilled over into other parts of our world that are impacting our ability to interact in life-giving ways with anybody. Just so we're on the same page, here are just a few examples. So, I have joked plenty of times in the past about how uh, strangers react when they find out what I do, and how I sometimes just say that I work for a nonprofit a as a way to avoid the awkwardness. But when I joke around like that, what you should be asking is what causes that awkwardness that leads me to say what I say? Well, let me tell you. It is a lack of trust in the institution and the position that I hold. That is what causes this. And that kills me, but I totally understand. So, so when somebody first meets me without knowing anything about me and then hears that I'm a pastor, for some people, the monologue in their head goes like this. Oh, so you're clergy. Hmm. So, do you molest children like all those other clergy people have done? Do you also hate the LGBTQ community like all those others? Are you going to judge me, tell me that I'm going to hell like all those others? Chad, I do not trust you. <laughs> and the truth is that if I was you and I did not know me, well, I guess I would not trust me either. There is a lack of trust in all of our institutions. Public school teachers know this really well right now, but it goes beyond that. There's a glut of surveys being done that show this. Even though data points might vary, all of these surveys tell the same story. It is hard to trust our neighbors. It is hard to trust organizations. Now, Naming the context in which we live our lives and our struggle to trust anyone or anything is really important because the story of our faith speaks to this. In the Bible, the word for believe is not simply a matter of logical thinking. It's not a matter of the head. Instead, to believe as it's used in the Bible, as in to believe in God, to believe in Jesus, to believe in the resurrection, to believe in love, that word Believe is better translated as trust. <laughs> yes, trust. That thing that we have a really hard time doing right now in our culture. A life lived in the kingdom of God, a life lived in connection with God and others is a life lived in trust. But how is that even possible? And what does that even look like, given the world that we live in? After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he showed himself in this way. Gathered there together were Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples. 
Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, We'll go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just after daybreak, Jesus stood on the beach, but the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, you have no fish, have you? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net to the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because there were so many fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It's the Lord! When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on some clothes, for he was naked, and jumped into the sea. But the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, only about a hundred yards off. When they had gone ashore, they saw a charcoal fire there with fish on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, a hundred fifty-three of them. And though there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared to ask him, Who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and, looked, and took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Our Gospel reading today is another resurrection story. It is really, really important for, for me to point out that in all of the Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in all of the Easter stories that are in those Gospels, there is skepticism, there's disbelief, there's lack of trust, whichever term you want to use. That's all there in those Easter stories. Those are present. Not all of the disciples just automatically believe or trust the reports of Jesus' resurrection. In the biblical stories, belief or trust in the resurrection, it's a process. It doesn't just happen. In the reading from John that we heard today, Jesus comes among his disciples for the third time, according to the text. And what strikes me always is how these resurrection stories are laid out to speak to a world in which belief or trust is really hard. To move his disciples from skepticism and fear to belief or trust, let me start with what Jesus does not do. Jesus does not use his superior linguistic skills to offer a convincing argument so that the disciples will believe. It's not what happens. He does not use fear tactics, guilt or shame. Nowhere does he do that. In fact, he does not say a thing to reveal his identity. Instead, he invites his disciples to discover and discern for themselves who he is. He invites his disciples to encounter the resurrection. In our focus text today, this encounter of the resurrection looks like this. It's in the ordinary places of life that Jesus shows up. It's in the fishing boat as people are doing their job, laboring, casting their nets to fish that Jesus shows up. It's in the abundance of their catch and the act of sharing a meal together that Jesus' disciples encounter the resurrection and are moved to trust 
and believe. So what does that mean for us? When we engage in what Jesus was all about, when we are welcoming to all people from all backgrounds, the risen Christ is encountered. When we replace hate and intolerance with love, the risen Christ is encountered. When we practice generosity in our life, the risen Christ is encountered. When forgiveness is given and received, the risen Christ is encountered. When someone goes out of one's way to offer support or words of encouragement or to lend a hand, the risen Christ is encountered. When we come to see the world, not in terms of who is right and who's wrong, not, uh, not in terms of us versus them, but through the love of God, the risen Christ is encountered. If you have ever been the recipient of some act of kindness, of forgiveness, of, of emotional support, words of love and encouragement, you most likely know what it is to have encountered the resurrected Christ. It's powerful. It's beyond words. It's, it, it happens in your everyday, normal place of existence. And believing it can only come through experience, through encounter. The story of the resurrection, the story of our faith, does not make us naive, though. It will not remove completely my, skeptic my skepticism. <laughs> there will be more cases of clergy sex abuse and community and school shootings. We're not done dealing with hard issues in our culture. Bad things do happen that call everything into question, everything that we thought we knew. However, what the story of our faith what the story of resurrection does is acknowledge the tension between trust and skepticism, between hope and despair. It does not easily dismiss them. Thank God for that. What the story of our faith, the story of resurrection does, is teach us that it's in the ordinary places of life that the resurrected Jesus is encountered. New life is encountered in these same places. The kingdom of God is encountered in our everyday life as the needs of others are met, as we lift up the voices of the marginalized, as we love our neighbors, as we walk with those who are not like us and listen to them. This is something that you can do every day in some way in your life. And living in, in this community and practicing the way of Christ, it does not remove skepticism, but it does hold it in tension. And it tempers it with the promise of God's made alive in the experience that comes from this, this community, from experiencing resurrection in our life. And so let me end with a blessing of sorts. In this season of Easter, May you experience the resurrected Christ. May you encounter the resurrected Christ. And through that, may you come to believe, to trust that which seems too good to be true. And may you be blessed and transformed so that others may experience the risen Christ through you. This is the good news that we hear today. Thanks be to God for that. Amen.
After hearing today's gospel reading and reflection on that reading, here are a couple of reflection questions to help you go deeper into the story of your faith. Question number one, where have you encountered the risen Christ? Uh, where have you experienced compassion, grace, mercy, and forgiveness in your life? Think about that. Really think about that. And question number two, how does the Easter story address your mistrust and skepticism in your life? 